It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and uh, going to have to do some uh, some quick adjusting on the fly this morning. Uh, unfortunately, our uh, studio phone has bitten the dust, and so if I have uh, uh, oh, if I have some people that will call the backup line, we might be able to go to a Plan B. But otherwise, we're going to have to uh, search through the uh, the archives and uh, dig up some uh, encores for you. In fact, uh, we have one on planetary health coming up in just a moment. There are uh, a couple of pre-recorded interviews that we'll play during the the middle of the show, and I'm not sure how we'll end up in the uh, third hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. But coming up here in uh, just a couple of minutes, we will... Um, have an encore with uh, Howard Frumkin talking about planetary health and and it seems appropriate that this would happen today of all days being Friday the 13th usually I have really good luck on Friday the 13th but this year uh, may be the exception to that rule um Anyway, let's uh, let's go ahead and dig in um, and get a chance to uh, hear this conversation with uh, Howard Frumkin coming up here in just a moment. Now the microphone's acting up. Well, tell you what, let's uh, let's go ahead and get right into it, shall we? Old-fashioned radio. For a new generation, Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Oh, yeah. 
Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is Emeritus Professor of Environmental and Occupational Health Services at the University of Washington School of Public Health. He uh, is the co-editor of a book, a new book called Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves, edited by Samuel Myers and Howard Frumkin. And it's Howard Frumkin who joins me now by phone. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. And I will uh, mention that, that the fact that you are both an MD and a doctor of philosophy as well. It's a doctorate in public health. So oh, okay. I'm, I'm, a, a, I'm a physician and also an epidemiologist. An epidemiologist is something nobody ever heard of until COVID-19, and now suddenly people <laughs> yeah. know what it is. <laughs> yeah, you're, now you're superstars. Um, <laughs> but I, I mentioned that the book was uh, edited and, and that you're a co-editor along with Samuel Myers from uh, Harvard, I believe. And right. uh, that's that's a little awkward for me because normally I talk to someone who has authored a book. And this is a little different because it's a collection of articles by a number of different um uh, leaders in the in the field of planetary health. Well, that's right, and we had to do it that way because planetary health is such a broad field that nobody can be expert in all of it, from food systems to land conservation to transportation and urban planning. So many things go into keeping our planet both sustainable and healthy that we wanted to get the best minds out there. So we uh, that's why we did it as an edited book. Now, that said, we were heavy-handed editors, so uh, each of the authors in the book kind of stuck to the same sets of themes, and we tried to get all the writing to be fairly consistent so uh, a person can actually sit and read through the book. <laughs> That's It's tough when you pull together a lot of different contributors to try and see if you can't work it out to be one voice. Um but but about the enough about the form let's let's talk about some of the substance the um you talk about planetary health and in one review of the book i i saw the phrase new paradigm um what do what do you think the new paradigm is with regard to planetary health well you know tom for for many years you would either be a biomedical or health person or you would be an environmental person, but not too many people did both. This new paradigm proposes that we can't have healthy people without a healthy planet. In fact, uh, the things we've been doing to our planet are increasingly destructive enough that they account for a bigger and bigger proportion of human suffering. So we need to think uh, in an absolutely conjoined way about uh, saving the planet and caring for people. And that's what planetary health is all about. You know, a lot of people hear the phrase planetary health, and they think uh, immediately their mind goes to climate change and and then to rising temperatures. And people uh, tend to think very sim simplistically, and I've entertained the same notions, isn't, isn't it just going to end up with people becoming somewhat nomadic and just moving to where it's not quite so hot? Well, there may be some of that, but 
planetary health goes way beyond climate change. Even if we didn't have any climate change, we would still need a field of planetary health because of all the other changes going on in our planet that have implications for our health. So You're talking about water pollution and uh, toxic chemicals uh, leaching into the ground and groundwaters and, and other forms of potential contaminants. Right. So we, what are the ways in which we're changing our planet? Well, the planet is chemically different than it was in our grandparents' day because we've created lots of persistent molecules that didn't exist before, and we've put them into the environment, so they're pretty much ubiquitous now. We've changed the uh, life cycles for the planet of nitrogen and phosphorus. Those are two elements that we use in fertilizers and for other things. And they, the, the way they cycle in the environment has completely changed. We've lost thousands of species. We're losing biodiversity, which is a natural feature of the planet. So lots of things are changing. Of course, they all interact with each other in very complicated systems ways. So understanding what the implications of those are for human health and then figuring out how we protect our health is, is key. That's one of the big challenges of upcoming centuries. Howard, I want to talk about that loss of species for just a moment, because um, how, how is the loss of species directly related to our own, you know, to protecting ourselves? How is it not just simply a, a form of natural selection? Well, let me give you three examples. Okay. One is pollinators. A lot of the crops that we grow that feed ourselves uh, or that feed the animals that we eat depend on pollination. And pollination takes place by bees and by other insects and other animals. Well, as we lose those species, we lose the ability to pollinate our crops, and that threatens agricultural output. So already what we're seeing is with bee populations suffering in various parts of the world, uh, farmers have to hire commercial uh, bee enterprises who drive in and supply the pollination services for a while and then move on. But if natural pollination declines, that's a real problem for feeding a hungry population. Second is fish. We are losing vast numbers of fisheries. We're, we're fishing most of the world's fisheries at or above capacity. And if we lose the fish that those fisheries provide, that's a nutritional threat to the billion or so people who depend on fish as their major source of protein in their diets. And a third example is the plants in forests that are very rich sources of pharmaceutical knowledge and of pharmaceuticals. As the plant diversity declines, there goes one of the big promising sources of new medications to treat illnesses over time. So really in many ways, we as humans depend on the diversity of life on the planet and it's not good for us when when we uh, minimize that life. We've been dealing with a lot of uh, strange things this year. Um, or not strange, but unusual uh, things that don't happen all the time. Um, I've I've heard people start referring to this year as having been twenty twentyed. Um, but between <laughs> hurricanes. And the fires out west, the pandemic, um, and, and not all of these things are related necessarily to climate change, the pandemic, for example. Um, but to what degree 
are these things showing us that that maybe the planet is not so healthy? I, I really think a lot of these events can be taken as, as uh, warning bells that we're hearing from the planet. So the first couple of uh, calamities you mentioned this year, the fires and the hurricanes, are exactly what are predicted from climate change, and, and we're not surprised that those are happening at a greater and greater frequency, and we'll see more of that in coming years. The pandemic is more complicated. That we don't want to blame on climate change, but the rise of pandemics has been very precisely predicted for years now, and this is no surprise either. Here are some of the conditions that give rise to pandemics. We've got a very large human population, well over 7 billion people. We live crowded together in urban centers that are growing. Urbanization is, is increasing at a rapid rate. We have a food system that's dysfunctional in many ways. Two examples are especially relevant. One is the, the trade in uh, wild uh, animals for food in wet markets in parts of Asia and Africa. And the other equally worrisome is the industrial agriculture that we've got where vast numbers of animals, both uh, cattle and swine and, and, um, and poultry, are grown in factory situations, essentially slums. In all of these situations, germs can move rapidly from the animal populations where they reside into human populations and they can change as they do that jumping. Then we've got globalization, where we travel around the world rapidly, so a germ that emerges in one place can rapidly get a foothold in another place and spread globally. So we saw all of that happening with COVID, and the solutions won't so much be the climate solutions, although they'll overlap. Solutions will have to do with land conservation, ecosystem conservation, uh, less human incursion into animal ecosystems and reforming our food system, as well as, of course, some basic public health solutions like uh, good epidemiology and contact tracing and so on, so that we can control future pandemics. More on planetary health with Dr. Howard Frumkin, straight ahead. Program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More on planetary health with Dr. Howard Frumkin straight ahead. One of the things about the uh, about the pandemic here in the U.S. has been um, this this whole notion about you know the president downplaying the severity of the of the pandemic and some people uh, not really trusting um, not only the the president but but anybody in any kind of authority including uh, uh, medical experts um, this this lack of trust how do we how do we know what information to trust um, how do we get people back with the idea that that scientific uh, research and and the conclusions that come from that are valid boy that's a tough challenge i i think you're exactly right that that not knowing what's true and what's not true and not being able to trust authorities is very very corrosive as we try to tackle a disaster like covid 19 so part of the answer i think is that good science has to be communicated well by trusted sources so we've seen um, the likes of Dr. Fauci as an excellent communicator. Governments should not stand in the way of that kind of thing. In fact, some of the most successful governments around the world are the governments that put their scientists forward as communicators about COVID rather than their politicians. Another problem we've got is the rapid spread of conspiracy theories and disinformation on social media. So this is a this is just a personal opinion, nothing more, but I think that we probably need to get a handle on our social media and shut down some of the disinformation that circulates so widely. Uh, I understand there are important freedom of speech considerations, and it's a very delicate, nuanced thing to think about limiting what's out there, but it's very clear that the unbridled spread of conspiracy theories and disinformation uh, is hugely destructive. Yeah, it's you know it's it's funny as you were talking about that. Um, you know, sure, freedom of speech is is a real concern, and there are some real benefits to social media, and we've certainly benefited from it during the the pandemic with the ability for people to, you know, Zoom conference and you know have have Skype meetings with you know family and friends far away and some not so far away um but i don't remember when the telephone first became a big thing the idea that people would call you up and lie to you <laughs> it, it it's kind of galling isn't it yeah, it it just seems it it just seems like a very strange problem to have well, uh, there are a lot of untruths that have circulated. COVID-19 is a great example, uh, claiming that certain medications are effective when they're not, claiming that the entire pandemic is a hoax, claiming that it was intentionally spread by uh, laboratories. I mean, th these are not true, and they undermine trust. And they dissuade people from taking the common sense precautions that we all ought to be taking. So that, to me, is no different than shouting a fire in a crowded theater. You just don't do that. It's dangerous and misleading, and it does all of us a disservice. 
I, I had the uh, the privilege of uh, talking with Carl Sagan's widow uh, a few weeks ago about mm. her um, uh, re-energizing the the Cosmos uh, TV series and in the new Cosmos book, and we were talking about in Carl when Carl Sagan was alive, people just believed him. You know he. He had studied, he knew a little bit about what he was talking about, he communicated it well and in ways that were easy to understand. Are the people who have the best information often not the best communicators? Well, I think that's true sometimes. Scientists are notoriously bad sometimes at being communicators, speaking in plain language and explaining what they know. But this is a different era than when Carl Sagan was with us. Now we've got a huge amount of noise out there where, uh, thanks to the Internet, anybody who has an opinion can put it out there and disseminate it broadly. Uh, we we also used to believe our news commentators on the major news networks. Yeah. But now there are hundreds of channels. Uh, most people get their news from Facebook, which means that every Facebook user, in essence, has his or her own news feed usually curated to consist of your friends and family with whose opinions you agree. So many people live in echo chambers where they hear the same things over and over again. And we've got news networks, and let me just name it, Fox is a great example that, uh, that makes media stars of people who spread conspiracy theories and disinformation, in many cases funded by special interests and We've got very good research now from the past couple of decades about the ways in which first the tobacco industry and then the fossil fuel industry have distorted public opinion and misrepresented the science to confuse people. So uh, it's not an accident that there is a lot of confusing and conflicted misinformation out there. Uh, too much of it's happening knowingly. And, and I, and and I would... Big challenges is and I would add to that, uh, Howard, that that I think uh, MSNBC and um, CNN and, and other cable outlets, whether they're on the right or the left, are spreading a lot more opinion than news. I think that there is a, the line between uh, opinion and editorial comment and news is fuzzier than it ever was my wife is a journalist, and she's a stickler for journalistic ethics, so I, <laughs> I get an earful on this all the time. <laughs> but I, and I, I think that, you know, you're right. I would agree with you that there are problems on the left and on the right, but I don't think that they're symmetric. I, there's a lot more poison coming from Fox News than there is from CNN. Uh, and I, I base that not on my personal opinions, but on the fact-checking uh, institutions that are out there that actually do the fact-checking and and disclose what we need to be careful about. I'm I'm just personally, and and now it's my turn. I, I don't do a lot of, I don't share a lot of my opinions usually, but I, I just see some writing that is, um, in a variety of media's that are supposed to be news sources that is um, is is clearly slanted. Well, uh, I, this is underlining the importance of having clear, believable facts. 
that we can um, base our decisions on. People are entitled to their own opinions, but they're not entitled to their own facts. So the more we can be fact-based in our discourse, the more scientists who understand uh, the ins and outs of things like COVID and climate change can have a hearing, the better. But we also have to recognize that uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the real world. COVID is a new virus, and we don't know all of the ways in which it behaves. Climate change is quite well understood, but that doesn't mean we have all the details of how it's going to play out. So part of getting the facts is understanding the limits of our knowledge and grappling with uncertainty, and that's a part of reality. How, how frustrating was it? I noticed you uh, you added a preface to the book, um, which had been completed pre-pandemic, but, but edited and uh, and then finally published during the pandemic. I, I see that you and uh, and Sam Myers uh, added a preface to make reference to the pandemic. Was it a little frustrating that you got this book done and then this huge event happens that that wasn't part of the book? Oh, well, the frustration was that COVID happened because of all the suffering that it's caused to so many people around the world. Well, of course. The book was the least of the issues. <laughs> no, we, uh, we thought that it was actually quite an opportunity to illustrate how planetary health principles uh, act out in the real world. In, in, uh, in getting this, this book put together, um, did you have a, a specific audience in mind? I mean, is this something that you hope will um, make it into the libraries of, of legislators and, and other policymakers? Um, or, or is this something really that explains to all of us what's going on around us? Well, we had several audiences in mind. One was students, college and uh, college level and graduate students, because typically if you're a student, you might major in biology or in health sciences or in the environment, but never fully get your arms around all the connections among them. So we wanted this to be used in classes where students could actually uh, get to learn about planetary health and and learn to think broadly and comprehensively about these challenges. But at the same time, we wrote for a general audience and we wrote for policymakers because we think it's so important that the public uh, tackle these issues and that policymakers make policies accordingly. Uh, the right policies, whether it be in the food system or in our energy system or our transportation system or in urban design, can protect the planet and also create uh, health and well-being for people, and, and those are the policies we all need to be about uh, implementing. How does how does economics fit into all this? A lot of the things that could be done aren't done because it isn't deemed good for the bottom line. No, that's true, and uh, one of the issues that we explored in the book is how we have to change our economic thinking so that uh, we think economically in ways that are fit for the 21st century and fit for a, a planet under challenge. One of the fundamental mistakes we make is that we look at the GDP, the gross domestic product, or, or the closely affiliated gross national product, GNP, 
those are our major indicators of economic success, economic progress. Well, GDP is not a very good measure of economic progress, and, and it was never intended to be by the economists who developed it. It measures economic activity, which reflects the throughput of energy and materials, but it doesn't measure anything having to do with human health and well-being, the things we really want to achieve. So if some chemical exposures make people sick and they have to go get medical care, and if that medical care entails producing medical supplies and equipment and paying doctor's salaries, that's good for the GDP. But none of us would have wanted people to get sick from chemical exposures. If a factory or a mine creates pollution and that pollution needs to get cleaned up, that's good for the GDP because it's economic activity, but it's not good for the planet or for people. So thinking about economics in ways that put human health and well-being and a sustainable planet at the center leads to different measures. Uh, that's a whole interesting set of challenges that, that we explore in the book. And then there's the other issue that uh, we have a lot of economic power concentrated in companies, many of which are not very conscientious about protecting health or the environment. So thinking about changing the incentives, internalizing costs, so that uh, those who do damage actually have to pay the price of that damage and would then be motivated not to do so much damage, that's a very useful approach as well. So that leads to things like taxing pollution, taxing carbon emissions, and uh, not taxing the things that are good, like income. Yeah, that's um, one of the things is people always talk about how well things are going on Wall Street and the stock market. And whenever I hear people saying, oh, the economy was just roaring before the, uh, uh, you know, before the pandemic, and I, I can't help thinking, not in my neighborhood. Well, you know, the the complete disconnect between how the stock market's doing and how we as a nation are doing, how people are doing, is pretty notable, isn't it? It kind of suggests that there's something a little wrong. How does, um, how can good planetary stewardship um, improve the health and welfare of of people beyond you know having better foodstuffs and so on? How can it impact economic health and well-being? Well, let's first define what economic health is. And it, of course, most of us think of it as more money in our pockets, and, and that's uh, part of it. Or at least making but sure that there's enough to pay all the bills. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Uh, but also, there's having strong family links. There's having strong community. There's having a sense that we care for each other. There's having a sense that we can trust our government and trust the institutions that we care about. There's knowing that if you dial 911, the police will come and protect you. And if you go out on the street, there won't be too many potholes to wreck your, your car or your bicycle. It, it's um, All of those are ingredients of a good life. And, and I'd maintain those are indicators of a healthy economy. So you asked how the principles of planetary health can help us get there. Well, one example 
is green space and uh, parks and wilderness. We need to protect those things. Those are good for the planet. They're good for the species that require them to live in. But they're also good for people. And we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic how restorative people find it to be outside in a park or a green space and how people have craved going to those places, how much they miss them when parks were closed down. So a simple strategy like protecting parks and green space, re-envisioning our cities so everybody has access to green space within just a short distance of where they live, is good for people and good for the planet. And the same thing's true for transportation. If we move a little bit away from single occupancy internal combustion engine cars toward walking and cycling and using transit, then that reduces the carbon footprint. It reduces the amount of land we have to put into automobile infrastructure, and that allows us to reclaim that land for other uses like housing and parks. It cleans up the air in our cities. It gets us more physically active, which attacks the obesity epidemic. It reduces the toll of uh, mortality and morbidity from car crashes, one of the major killers of young people in the country. So here again, in the transportation world, we have these solutions that are joint solutions, good for the planet, good for people. And that's the kind of solution we need to be about uh, identifying and implementing. But a lot of those solutions uh, require um, a very different uh, set of, of or, or a very different kind of political will than what we currently see. And and these are big issues requiring big policies, but what can John Q. Public do to be more protective of nature and, and help contribute to planetary health? Well, each of us makes decisions every day in our lives about the kind of food we eat, the way we travel, the, the things we consume. And I think we can all be more mindful. So shifting a little bit from meat toward more plants in our diet is really good for the planet because producing meat has a very heavy footprint on land and water and climate change. Uh, Plant-based diets are healthier for us anyway. So how we eat, how we travel. You know, so many of our trips are short little trips of a mile or two that could easily be done on foot or by bicycle. So maybe don't jump in the car quite as often. And if you do, and if you can, maybe get a more fuel-efficient car or even an electric vehicle. Uh, the things we buy, a lot of us buy so many things that are disposable or buy more than we need. So cut back on that a little bit. But above all, I'd say those behavioral changes are good. We need to do them. But more important is system change, and that means that we have to vote and we have to encourage our elected representatives to do the right thing when it comes to changing our energy system and changing our transportation system. Uh, those are things bigger than any of us can do as individuals, but we sure can vote. And the timing on today's call is just great because with the election coming, it's a, a wake-up call to everybody to, to go ahead and vote and vote for candidates and then uh, prevail on our elected officials to tackle these challenges of, of uh, planetary health. Well, the name of the book is Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. It's edited by Samuel Myers and my guest this hour, Howard Frumkin. And uh, Howard, um, we're just pretty much out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let people know 
where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. But um, do you have a website, or is there a, rev- a website that you would recommend that, that has links to uh, information that would help people learn more about this? Yes, there is. The one I'd recommend is called the Planetary Health Alliance. You can uh, search on those words, Planetary Health Alliance, and that'll come right up. It's a terrific one-stop shop for information on all of the dimensions of planetary health and further sources of information. Well, Howard, thanks so much for spending this time with me uh, today. Thanks very much. I've enjoyed it. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. My guest, uh, Dr. Howard Frumkin, is Emeritus Professor of Environment and Occupational Health Sciences at the University of Washington School of Public Health, where he was dean from 2010 to 16. He was uh, previously head of Our Planet, Our Health at the Wellcome Trust and director of the National Center for Environmental Health and Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, He's written a number of books, and he and Samuel Myers from Harvard Uh, edited this book, Planetary Health, Protecting Nature to Protect Ourselves. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program.
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know, I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. And if you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan with Blood Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. 
Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guests this hour are here to talk about some things that women need to know about breast cancer. And uh, they are uh, the head of U.S. Medical Affairs at uh, Bear Radiology, Dr. Pamela Habib. Pamela, welcome. Thank you. And... Uh, Breast radiologist at Northwestern's uh, Lynn Sage Breast Center at Prentice Women's Hospital, Dr. David Schacht. And, uh, David, welcome to you as well. Am I saying that right? Is it Schacht? Schacht? Schacht, yeah, more awesome. You got it, though. Great okay. to be with you. Well, thank you, David and uh, and Pamela. Thank you both for being here. Um, I I was looking over, uh, you know, just some, some talking points before are getting together, and I, I was reading this statistic, and, and I'm just going to start with this kind of random thought. Um, the risk for breast cancer can be four to six times higher for women with dense breasts rather than women with less dense breasts, and I, I, I looked at that, and I thought, what does that even mean? <laughs> so I thought maybe, um, and I don't know which one wants to start. Um, what? How do how do you determine the denseness of a breast? That's a great question, Tom. Um, I can start with this one. Um, really, the way to determine if a breast is dense or not is on a mammogram. So I, it's a common um, unknown fact. So a lot of people think that you can feel it and feel your breasts and know if they're dense or not, but it really is the mammogram that lets the radiologist know whether the breasts are dense or not. And what that means is the ratio of what we call fatty tissue to fibroglandular tissue. So there's two types of tissues, and the more um, fibroglandular tissue a woman has compared to the fatty tissue, the more dense the breast is. And um, the reason it's important, one, as you mentioned, just having the dense breast alone increases a woman's risk of getting breast cancer, um, but on top of that, it also makes the mammogram harder to read. And so because dense breast, are, is actually, dense breast tissue is white on a mammogram and cancers also appear white on a mammogram, if a woman has a lot of dense breast tissue, it can be very difficult to identify tiny cancers that could be hiding in there. So it's kind of a twofold um, impact because it makes the mammogram more difficult to read and it also increases the underlying risk. And and what's what's the alternative, um, you know, after all these years of getting women t- to get mammograms, what do they do if they if they get a mammogram and find out that it it really isn't revealing as much as they would hope? Yeah, Tom, I think that's a it's an important point you're you're getting to, and in fact, the studies that have been done of of mammograms show that they save lives, and they save lives across all density categories. So, you know, I think step one for women, first and foremost, is to um, please keep getting screening mammograms. Um, that's, that's priority number one. Um, the added layers on top of what we've learned over the last number of years about um, extra screening tests for those women who do have high breast density um, is really just getting towards 
um, even even better care for, for these particular patients. And, you know, which extra tests get done um, kind of uh, are things that need to be discussed between the patient and their regular care providers. Um, and certainly all of their risk factors need to be taken into consideration. So if you are a woman who is seen to have high breast density on her mammogram, it's probably worth a conversation with your provider, not only about that, but about any other risk factors you might have um, in terms of family history or personal history of any issues. So that the best um, decision regarding additional screening tests can be made um, really as a um, collective decision-making between the patient and her care provider. Does the density of a breast um, say anything about uh, propensity for breast cancer, or does it just make it harder to spot early? It's really both. Um, it, it makes it harder to spot early, but it also increases the propensity um, to about, you know, if you compare extremely dense breasts to non-dense breasts, it's about a four to six-fold difference in the risk of developing breast cancer. And that's due to a number of factors, um, but the studies that have looked at this have shown that that increased risk just from having done breast. How likely is it that a woman is going to have breast cancer? So over the course of um, a woman's lifetime in this country, and, you know, the, the overall rates have unfortunately slowly increased over time, uh, but currently it's approximately one out of every eight women. And, and that's not talking about, um, you know, the populations of women who maybe have one of the known genetic mutations that give patients high risk. This is, this is just talking about American women across the board in general. And, you know, that's a really important point because 75% of breast cancers in this country occur in women who don't have a family history. And this is something that I've experienced as a physician very commonly and frankly as a, as a family member too. Just so much of breast cancer does not necessarily relate to those sort of high-risk groups. Um, but that's additionally a factor as to why Screening is so effective. It's just a, a very common disease to the, to the point of your question. Are, are cancers very separatized? I, I, I read somewhere recently that cancer was inevitable, that, that everybody was going to get some form of cancer at some point. And it, it may have been somebody that was, you know, being sarcastic or an alarmist or something. But but it makes me curious, just because a woman doesn't have breast cancer doesn't mean she might not have some other form of cancer. Are all cancers the same? Are they all different? And and what should people, women in particular, uh, be doing? If they, if they get an all clear on a mammogram, that doesn't mean they're cancer free necessarily. Or does it? That's a bad no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, so in terms of overall, like all different cancers, as you mentioned, it's, it's important to stay regular and um, 
within the guidelines and within the timing for all, all of the different screening tests, whether that's colon, whether that's breast, um, just making sure that you're talking to your doctor and staying on schedule. Um, but then within the breast cancer risk itself, as you just mentioned, the, the negative or the normal mammogram doesn't necessarily mean that it's totally normal, but it is a great test and it saves lives and that is the gold standard. Um, we just want to make sure that if a woman has dense breast, she has that additional conversation in case there is additional testing that may help her, given that it's harder to read those mammograms. What would that what would that result in that that conversation that uh, um, that would happen after a mammogram that revealed that breasts were dense and it was hard to to really screen for cancer? What would be the next step? Yes. Um, so in that situation that you're describing, where a patient is um, you know otherwise doing great and, and happens to have high breast density, you know, that, that conversation typically revolves around the fact that, you know, the, the density itself is, is normal. It's, it's a fact of life for, um, uh, you know, 40% or so, depending on the patient population of people. So, you know, I, I think the proper way to look about it, look at it is, um, towards educating patients about this factor and then deciding if the next steps for them make sense. The next steps typically for patients who have high breast density would be consideration of supplemental screening, as it's called. So this is screening done in addition to your routine mammogram. And, you know, across the country, the two most common tests that, that are performed in that situation are either a screening ultrasound or a screening MRI, um, both of which um, to, to different rates can detect um, additional cancers that um, most commonly are very easily treatable and um, result in very good patient outcomes when detected. And, and an opportunity to detect those cancers early as well in the, in the process of following up on the mammogram that was less than conclusive. So one one in eight um, women are um, likely to to develop breast cancer at some point in their life. What is what constitutes finding it early? So um, you know the the goal of screening tests in general and mammography in particular um, is to find things before they would be clinically evident. The most common way that a breast cancer would become clinically evident is um, either a patient or a physician who does a physical exam being able to um, actually feel a lump. Um, when those situations occur, Thankfully, with modern medicine, patients still can do quite well. But all things being equal, you would like a smaller, earlier detection of the tumor so that the treatment can not only be less invasive, but the chances of that it has long-term impact on the patient's life are, are you low. You pilots, get off um, my lawn! Really the name We're of the trying game. to do a radio show down here! It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. 
Come on, get out of here. <laughs>